Good afternoon and welcome to the ninth and final film forum of the 43rd Cleveland International Film Festival. I'm Stephanie Jansky, Director of Programming here at the City Club, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to this forum. Uh, for the first uh, 15 minutes or so, Joe Froelich will lead our panelists in conversation, and the second 15 minutes is powered by your questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand, and Rob over here will bring a microphone over to you. Please do not shout out your question, as we are recording for the City Club's podcast. We want to be sure we can capture your question. Um, and we anticipate a lot of questions, so we could please ask you to keep speeches to a minimum and actually ask a question. We'd be really, really grateful. Um, today's conversation is focused on the framing question, what's the value of the free press? And here to lead that conversation is IdeaStream Executive Editor, Joe Froelich. Wild applause, thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Stephanie. Did you like the film? All right. Um, so I point out you can see it again tomorrow. Uh, they're showing it here at 2.30, or you can watch it next Friday night, April the 12th on WVIZ PBS here in Cleveland. It's beyond at nine o'clock. It's part of PBS's American Masters series. You may have seen a little reference to American Masters right at the start of that. So. And if I may make an, a shameless uh, a commercial for, uh, for PBS and for WVIZ, you should stick around afterwards because there's going to be a preview of a, a series that's coming this summer called Chasing the Moon, a really incredible documentary that PBS has commissioned about the, uh, the, 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 the race to get to the moon, the space race of the 1960s, tied to the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So work, uh, please uh, think about that. Um, let me start by introducing our panel. To my right is Oren Rudowski. He, of course, is the director of Joseph Pulitzer, <laughs> Voice of the People. Uh, he's a graduate of Oberlin College and a distinguished filmmaker who's won a Guggenheim Fellowship, two National Endowment for the Arts Filmmaker Awards, two National Endowment for the Humanities Grants, as well as many other awards and commendations. His film, A Life Apart, a, a Citizen in America was shortlisted for the Academy Awards, and his film Hiding and Seeking was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award. He's also led major projects for ABC and CBS. But lest you think that everything he does is really serious, he's also done work for the real world and Saturday Night Live. So <laughs> just shows what you can do with a liberal arts degree. Um, next, we have uh, Jan Leach. Jan's led newsrooms in Phoenix, Cincinnati, and Akron during her storied career in the newspaper industry. Nowadays, she's molding the next generation of journalists, and from some of them who work for me, I will tell you that she does a damn good job of it, at Kent State University, where she's an associate professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communications. Applause for Kent State, if anybody's out there. Feel free. She directs Kent's Media Law Center for Ethics and Access, and is an ethics fellow at the Pointer Institute for Media Studies in St. Petersburg, Florida. So you can tell one of her professional obsessions is helping people sort out the difference between fact-based journalism and fake news, which keeps her pretty busy. Next, we have Jim Crutchfield. Uh, he's a distinguished journalist and teacher in his own right. Uh, he grew up in Pittsburgh, and we'll try not to hold that against him, and began his journalism career at age 20 as a reporter with the Pittsburgh Press, later worked for the Post-Gazette before joining the Detroit Free Press in 1976. That began his long association with the Knight Ritter newspaper chain at a time when that organization was the envy of journalists everywhere. He worked for Knight Ritter properties in Detroit, Long Beach, Philadelphia, and Akron where he served two stints. First time at the Beacon Journal, he was the managing editor. When he returned in 2000, he was the paper's general manager, then its president and publisher. He retired when the Akron Beacon Journal was sold in 2006. 
Since then, he's taught at Arizona State University in Duquesne and serves as board chair of Public Source, a journalism nonprofit serving the Pittsburgh area. And finally, at the, my far right, we have Patrick Cabot. He's a First Amendment attorney here in Cleveland. It's also where he grew up. He has extensive media and entertainment law pr practice. He's represented clients including the New York Times, CNN, CBS, and HBO in lawsuits across the country. He's the director of Cleveland Marshall College of Law's First Amendment Media and Entertainment Law Practicum Program. He's a graduate of Yale University Law School, where he was ed editor of the Yale Journal of Law and Humanities. So welcome to all the panel. I thought we'd start real quickly, though, by asking Oren just to give us the, uh, the elevator pitch, you will, in terms of what attracted him to the, uh, the life of Joseph Pulitzer and why he wanted to make this movie. Thank you so much, Joe, and, and really, I, I'm really honored to be on a panel with, with you all, very distinguished folks, and I, I uh, luckily, uh, we're not on a debating team here, so I don't have to be competing on that level, but, but I'm really curious to hear your, your thoughts about, about the film more, more than my own, really. Um, uh, the, the genesis of this film did not begin uh, where, where it's ended up, really, in, in, in many ways. This was a pre-2016 uh, film, uh, in its, uh, so in its moment of genesis, it was a film at the moment when newspapers were uh, in crisis, as they still are, uh, and that, that, that was the sort of instigating reason and, and rationale for wanting to work on the film. And also, uh, I didn't know anything about Joseph Pulitzer. And uh, he, of course, I knew about the Pulitzer Prizes and, and, and little else, to be honest. And, and I, I read a, a book uh, by his, one of his secretaries called Memoirs um, with Memoirs, mem oh, I'm forgetting the name, Adventures with a Genius. Sorry about that. Um, by uh, Aline Ireland, who, who worked for him in the last year of his life. And, and that book uh, I found to be very revealing and uh, of his inner character, because if you read his pronouncements, they're, they're very grand and, and in a way grandiose, in a way that people seem to speak it in that era, but, but very important uh, statements about, about a free press and, and, and about uh, uh, First Amendment rights and, and um, and so he was kind of anticipating 2016 for, for me. And, and then, of course, uh, the run-up to the election just, just sort of changed the, the tenor of, of, of what we were doing and, and its importance. And, and here we are today. Um, I, I'd like to ask everybody to talk about a little bit about that. One of the, 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 the it, uh, in some ways, the film was bookended by this, uh, the, uh, the, ca the libel case, the criminal libel case involving Teddy Roosevelt uh, reacting to a piece of uh, investigative reporting and being, you know, the labeling of him as fake news. And although it turns out they actually did do some fake news a little bit before that, but um, we're now, we now live in this era where, the, uh, where many media organizations, the mainstream media is under sort of constant, uh, not only scrutiny, but attack, if you will, uh, by ver for in, ver in a heavily partisan tone. How do you think a, a Joseph, uh, Pulitzer would have uh, would have would have reacted to something like what he's, what's, what's going on today. Every everybody like to weigh in on that. So I love that question because I do research into fake news and 
fake news, by the way, has been around for a generation, like centuries. So it's not, it didn't start with him. It's not going to end here. Um, I think, here's what I think. I think that uh, Joseph Pulitzer would be wildly curious about what's happening right now. Sort of, who, who said that? Why are we attacking the media or, or the journalists? But I think he would also be emboldened by the com emboldened by the competition. I think the competition, and of course, there's so much more competition everywhere from everybody in every kind of medium and technology. He would be emboldened by that competition and, and really want to tell many stories. And I, I also think, and I, I wrote this down in the dark, so I'm having trouble reading it, um, that he would be ins inspired by his role as influencer. If you think about all the influencers we have now, you know, like obviously there's no Instagram when he's living, um, but he was an influencer and he did a lot of, of important work to tell people's real stories and then to expose corruption. And then he recognized, I get it, I need to make enemies and that's what we're supposed to be doing. And I think that he would be really inspired by that, by his role as influencer without Twitter and, and Instagram. Yes, I'd like to uh, uh, point out the tone that Joseph Pulitzer might have taken. And I'll do that by reading you something he's, uh, he said in response to uh, one of his rivals as uh, in New York uh, of another newspaper, I think The Sun, The New York Sun. Uh, the editor of the world accepts the hatred Mr. Dana, uh, of Mr. Dana as a compliment. He especially appreciates the agonized heart cry of Mr. Dana, which remembers a yesterday's issue of The Sun in the midst of a literary muck heap, which could only be found on the editorial page of that paper. We wish you, Pulitzer, that you had never come. In other words, he would not back down. He would not have backed down. He would have uh, been telling uh, the President of the United States that uh, uh, bring it on. And, and, uh, uh, and, and, and you know, the reference to uh, uh, the lawsuit by Teddy Roosevelt against Joseph Pulitzer uh, suggests that there is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> Uh, because because the uh, uh, it is government and and journalism are are set up to be at odds by the U.S. Constitution. I think he would be surprised by how familiar our world is to his. Um, and the, the the startling thing I think uh, to contextualize some of this is that the First Amendment didn't apply to the states when Joseph Pul throughout Joseph. Pulitzer's life. Um, it became a vessel for everything that he spoke about in terms of the value of the press in the middle of the century. But it didn't protect him when he picked fights with powerful people um, at, during the Gilded Age. And so I think he'd be surprised and gratified to see how much our laws have incorporated his beliefs about the value of a free press. I think he'd also recognize a lot of kinship in surprising places. We use his name today as, as, a, as, a, as a hallmark for uh, the, the finest and highest standards of, of journalism, but those were developed in the 60s and 70s through a whole s series of reasons of economic concerns. He, was, he, he may have been independent, but he was hardly objective, and I think he would find a lot more kinship with, with many of the, um, the publishers, Gawker, for example, in addition to the New York Times. So I think, I think uh, he, would, he would find kinship in places today that we might be surprised by but he would certainly recognize the antipathy and antagonism that the press provokes. 
And I think in light of the fact that his uh, ethos has now permeated our laws, he'd be surprised that our public officials are still making the same threats that Teddy Roosevelt was making 100 years ago. Uh, Pat, if I could ask you why, 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 you're, why you still got your mic on there. Um, the, the idea of it, you mentioned that the, the First Amendment hadn't necessarily been extended at that point. It wasn't seen that way, uh, even when he was talking about freedom of the press. What was the state of the law? Was there any basis to this uh, the case that the federal that, that Teddy Roosevelt wanted to bring? I mean, could he have brought that under state law? Or what was the uh, what was the idea of a criminal libel at that time in the United States? Yeah, sure. So, uh, when we created the Constitution, we basically assumed that a bunch of stuff from England still stayed there, and there were these criminal libel statutes on the books in many states where the state. And it, today, libel is a civil civil claim. I can sue you if you defame me. Uh, but the, the states could prosecute people for criminally harming someone's reputation, and this, this was still on the books in the states. Now, New York, where, where, where um, Joseph Pulitzer was publishing, did not prosecute him for the article about Roosevelt. So this case, uh, United States versus Press Publishing Company, uh, arises out of Teddy Roosevelt's desire to find some hook. And his hook, uh, and, and for the record, let's say from the outset, the words First Amendment appear nowhere in the opinion. I think the, the documentary is, is, is it perfectly puts it that this, the spirit of the First Amendment animates that decision, but it is nowhere in it. It, it was decided on a legal technicality. The Attorney General found a statute that allowed the federal government to, pro to, to assume that state laws would be applied on federal property, like West Point in New York, where the world was circulating. So the AG went and said, hey, we're gonna assume that New York's criminal libel statute can be enforced by federal courts because it was circulated in West Point, and, this, and by the time it, and, well, the, the, the Southern District of New York, uh, the trial court dismissed claims. By the time it got to the Supreme Court, all the Supreme Court decided was we're not going to apply duplicative um, uh, criminal uh, sanctions in, in a circumstance where the state of New York did not impose them. It did not address the freedom of the press. It did not address the First Amendment. Uh, it, there's nothing, that opinion uh, represents a decision to protect the press, but it does not impose press protections. Um, it's, it's very much a creature of its time in that way because we need to remember too that Joseph Pulitzer, he provoked a lot of the, um, the, 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 the regulations that we now see. He created the right of privacy. It didn't exist before 1890 until a couple of law professors in, in Boston were outraged that pictures of people were appearing in newspapers and asked the states to create privacy regulations. So he was fighting through all these things in a context where um, the First Amendment just didn't apply, and it didn't protect him when he picked a fight with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, no, that, thank you again. I'm, uh, um, one, one thing that, um, you know, I wish came through stronger in the film besides in the context of that fight with Teddy Roosevelt was just uh, the lengthy vitriolic uh, statements that Roosevelt made directly towards Pulitzer in, a, in, in his lengthy letter to Congress, which was printed verbatim in, in the world. And, and uh, again, I, I wish I had it here. There's a little bit of it in the film, but he did you know, threaten him with jail. He, I mean, the, there's a whole another context for the similarities to today's uh, world where, where the president feels perfectly fine uh, attacking personally people and uh, accusing them of things which are incorrect. And so 
it, you know, in, in a funny way, it's Pulitzer who could have uh, tried to prosecute, you know, it couldn't, the president, but in, but in effect, that's what he was able to do in the paper. So anyway, that's a secondary or primary context which, which is of interest to me. I wonder, Jan and Jim, could you talk a little bit about, from the standpoint of when you're running a newspaper, um, he talked that you know uh, it was very important to to Pulitzer to, uh, to to tell the stories of average people to not to be worried about making enemies. Yet the reality is, when you run a newspaper, you are also running a business, and that can become sometimes difficult if, if you are if you make too many enemies. Talk about how you would on a real on a day to day basis. How would you balance those two tensions? I am so lucky. My boss. My former boss is sitting right here, so I'm the editor. If the you know the editor has a really huge problem, I just kick it up to the publisher, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I I think you really, really as an editor have to think about your audience. You got to know that audience. You got to know what they're interested in, and then you have to pursue the truth. Now that you know, I teach ethics, right? So truth is a very interesting concept. Um, and what's true today may not be true tomorrow, but balancing what's true for this audience versus your, you know, the business people, the people who are advertising, you know, the people who, who need that paper, that's a very, very difficult and tenuous tightrope, tightrope to walk. I, I see you, I see you smiling. Um, tightrope to walk. Uh, on the other hand, from the editor's perspective, from the editor's perspective, I am looking for the truth for my audience. And I like what Pulitzer said many, many times. I wrote it down, again, in the dark, about accuracy. You know, accuracy is important. So if I'm pursuing the truth and I'm being accurate, then that's my role. That's my role as the editor. But my role is different than his. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and I but I would say that accuracy is 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 a key to uh, being able to stand your ground. Uh, but at the same time, publishers, uh, as Joseph Pulitzer well knew, uh, have to balance uh, the the truth and inaccuracy with the ex the need to exist. And so you have to be on firm ground, and you have to. Uh, be willing to to take chances, but also understand the perspective of of the of the your whole public. Uh, Pulitzer, I, I think, rather famously uh, was um, uh, a publisher for the masses, but he included the elite in among the masses. He was not. Uh, he understood that that uh, all of the people were important, and I think that's the role of the publisher is to to understand that and to balance everybody's interests. Oh, I just, uh, just to echo um, the, the difficulty of, of, of balancing truth and other interests, uh, no, there's nothing more difficult than deciding after the fact what truth is. And, and, and take this from someone who litigates the question of truth. It's, it's, imp it's impossible to decide um, larger truths, what the larger meaning of interconnected events are. And in this country, the fact that journalists and editors have those conversations is all our law asks of them. And it forbids uh, the, the state from second guessing those judgments, whether they do it to slake profit interests or to uh, ennoble citizens. The law says you, when you search truth, you, you don't need to explain it in advance. You need to, you need to simply do your best to find it. 
and these legal protections came out of a, out of out of a recognition that pursuing truth is 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 impossible, and truth is in many ways unknowable. So. Um, Today, when we talk about this, we have these normative assumptions that have been built up over 50 years of, of, of legal decisions that represent how we think about the First Amendment, and we, and we celebrate journalists who pursue truth. But there's always been a hard line, to Oren's concern, against the government ever saying, I get to tell you how to pursue truth, or I get to tell you what your truths are. Well, to, to follow up and, and support what you've just heard, I would say I, I have always known that distilling perfect truth is virtually impossible. What you're, what you're doing is pursuing the truth. And that's why accuracy in pursuit of the truth is so important. I just really had a question, which, which in, in, in working on the film, um, Pulitzer is the publisher of the paper, but as we all know, uh, the editor on down and the reporters and, and, and all the rest are, are the ones shaping it day to day. So I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, both when a, a, a lawsuit comes through or whatever, you know, it, who, who's getting sued and what is the role or what is the distinction between uh, or responsibilities of editors versus uh, the publisher, et cetera. It's just one that concerned me when I was working on the film. So, uh, I'm married to an attorney and he has told me this and I believe it. Anybody can sue anybody for anything. So if you are unhappy with the newspaper, you can sue the reporter, the photographer, everybody from the receptionist and the editor and the publisher and the company that owns the newspaper or the media company. So um, it is true, Jim can verify. I mean, I have been sued as you know editor of the Akron Beacon Journal. Um, Luckily, we won all those suits, um, but you know the responsibility is whoever the person. And you know, Tess, I'd love for you to explain that legal terminology. But the re you know who is responsible for either damaging the reputation or the untruth or the um, you know malice, that kind of thing. Anybody can be sued. So. Yeah, it's a great question because um, and and it, it erupted most recently when Sarah Palin sued the New York Times, and the question was. Um, you know, who is responsible for what was alleged to be false in an entity where both the uh, editorial and opinion uh, staffs were involved as well as the newsroom and um, a number of people touched a story that may have had, uh, uh, may have conflicted with previous reporting. The legal answer is straightforward. Um, the law deems anyone uh, who, who's responsible through the, the chain of speech for making a statement responsible for it, either liable for any defamation. So if a company publishes a libel, the company can be sued in its capacity. Uh, to the extent that any of its employees were involved in publishing it, if they had the required fault, that is that they, under today's standard for public figures, that they actually knew it was false, subjectively, or recklessly disregarded uh, information that would have apprised them that it was false. They too are liable. It becomes less of a question today when, when through contracts, you know, the, uh, an entity like the New York Times will indemnify its reporters and, 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 and guarantee defenses and ensure libel suits, but the law treats it all as, as you know, once it's published with your imprimatur, even if you didn't write the story, it's on you. Uh, now, the criminal libel proceedings, uh, I, I believe, um, were brought against the company, not against Pulitzer. He, he, was, he was not the, I don't believe he was the named def defendant.
but I, I would have to go back and look. It's been a while. Um, but you can do that as well. You can, you can prosecute civilly or criminally, today civilly, the entity. Um, ordinarily, you name the entity if you're a plaintiff because you want those deep pockets. You don't care about the editor's house. You want the company's coffers. Right. Um, we want to go to take some questions from the audience. Is anybody? Did you want to jump? Did you want to? Um, uh, let's uh, now. Let's take some folks from folks out there. Is there anybody who wants to speak to um, who do you think is the most uh, the people who currently have the most integrity and the uh, most courage in terms of who's going to take the people in power to task? currently, and then is there anybody who we think we can trust who you want to warn us about? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll take a shot at that. <laughs> uh, you know, um, when I went from Pittsburgh, home of Nellie Bly, by the way, uh, uh, when I went from Pittsburgh to Detroit, we, uh, uh, the people in Detroit told me that uh, Detroit was, the, the Detroit Free Press was probably the sixth best newspaper in the country uh, and didn't really, that wasn't boasting. Uh, the, the belief was that there were at least a half a dozen or, or a dozen great newspapers in America. I think today we're down to two. Uh, two big national newspapers, you know what they are, the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, I think that uh, I, I have lots of problems with 24-hour with, uh, uh, cable uh, uh, because I, I think it's a lot of, of opinion and not enough fact. Uh, but I think that there are lots of places where good information is coming from. Um, with all that said, I don't know if I fully answered your question, but let me go back to something that uh, uh, was said about, you know, who is responsible uh, when for the, the truth or inaccuracy of, of uh, the media. Uh, uh, once I was in a conversation with a young reporter who said, you know, I think your job is to use up the resources of the, of the, of the company uh, for the, the good of the community. And I thought, no, it's not. Uh, I mean, you know, he really he, he thought that it was, it was the right thing to do to to uh, put everything into what he thought was the, the publication of truth. A big part of my job and big part of the job as Joseph Pulitzer saw it was to continue to be able to do that by, um, uh, you know, selling newspapers, selling advertising so you could support the journalism. And one of the things that, that helped me understand the value of, of being in charge was when I met an advertising person who said, you know, I see my job as bringing in the resources to do the job on the news side of the newspaper. Over there. Oh, sorry. Could I say something sure. about that? So I just want to say thank you so much for asking that question because for people like me who care a lot about news and accuracy and truth and mainstream media. It's really very exciting to think that other people think that too and that you don't think we're all fake news because you know we hear that label a lot. So I wanted to thank you for asking the question and I wanted to say I agree completely with everything that Jim said about newspapers but I wanted to direct you there, there is a um, 
a survey that was done about you know who, who in this country, who in America is considered, you know, the most left leaning, the most right leaning, and then the most the most neutral. I forget. Is it the Reporters Committee? Does anybody remember who that who did? Anyway, I could actually send it to you. Um, but what what it showed was that you could look at a lot of how people see the neutrality of the media has to do with their what's called their biases. So it's called it's a, it's a thing called confirmation bias, and you're going to believe what you believe no matter what we say. But the survey shows that hitting right down the middle is NPR of all things. So it's it's NPR. Um, then you get um, the New York Times considered very liberal on one side, C um, Breitbart News and others, Infowars on the other side. But there, that survey has been taken, I think, three times now, and it's it's pretty much that's where it's that's where it lands. So I just wanted. And I wanted to apologize to Joe because I should have said <laughs> <laughs> public radio, public television yeah. too. I, I think it's a great question, and just to to add to this roster of, um, and I should disclaim. I represent a lot of these companies, so I'm not suggesting that one is better than the other. But here are a couple of points because the question is about courage and trust. And I think one of the, the things I learned most from the documentary was uh, just how powerfully uh, Joseph Pulitzer's readers trusted him. Um, and so today, there's, I just want to emphasize three things that are, are markers of trust um, that I think, because the First Amendment puts it on us to decide who to trust, um, uh, we should remember. One of which is transparency. Uh, news organizations that explain what they're reporting, how they got it, what their sources are, uh, clarify potential uh, ambiguities, show their process are the ones that you should trust because they're asking, they're giving you the tools to judge credibility with. By the same token, secrecy is not a vice. When a, a news organization that defends its sources and protects them is an organization that you are more likely to trust, not less, because even though it has withheld the name of that person from you, it has done so in order to ensure that that person will tell it what that person knows. And, and, and it is to ensure access to that uniquely trustworthy informed information uh, that, that those names are withheld. Um, and then the third is defiance. The news organizations are most courageous today that sue the government for access to information, that defend libel suits vigorously, um, that push back when, the, uh, when federal agents impersonate journalists in criminal investigations and uh, uh, wiretap newsrooms to pursue other alleged crimes. Those are the institutions that you can trust are animated by the same principles to pursue truth and, and, and expose wrongdoing that animated Joseph Pulitzer. Great, thank you. I really appreciate that about the particularly what you said about NPR and PBS, but also what you said about trust. I think that's hugely important. Back there, we got a question? Uh, hi. Um, I think we get we get really caught up in is it fake news, is it real news? To me, the most important thing lies right in the middle, that sort of objective reporting that looks at a news story very holistically from many different viewpoints. And I think it's hard, especially today, with so much content gushing from every pore, to decipher that, to look at a story very objectively um, and, again, holistically. So what is your advice, you know, sort of wearing your um, average – Joe, consumer that's just out there, in, you know, in this busy world, having a very busy life, maybe not necessarily having the time to say, my news source is this right leaning, is this left leaning. What is your advice for a person out in the world just absorbing the news in that more holistic way? What should they do? What should they look for? 
Okay, I'll hit it. <laughs> I actually research fake news, so there is a great deal of advice that um, I would give you. And one would be um, make sure that you have a good diet of news sources, which is to say not just one or not just one ideological type of news source. So, um, you know, if, if you only read the New York Times, and I love the New York Times, but you want to make sure you hear what else is being reported. So one thing you can do is absolutely check your sources, check your own biases, ask who else is reporting this, see if things make sense. So there, you know, and there's really famous cases I could give you, but one of my all-time favorite ones um, had to do with a story that appeared on a website about a month before the 2016 election that said the they had found all these secret ballots in Columbus, Ohio. Does anybody remember this story? Yeah, so it was on this website and it like zinged through the internet in like nanoseconds, right? And it turned out that, you know, the person who did it was sitting in his kitchen in Maryland and he had made the whole thing up, totally fake. Um, there is a story about this in the New York Times. And, um, you know, he, he just wanted to sort of see, you know, for gullibility, who would fall for it. But also on websites, the way you get money is by people going to your website. So it was like the eyeballs that are on your website. And he got a lot of eyeballs on his website, but it, it, it made um, the uh, Ohio Attorney General and the Secretary of State go check and see and whatever. Everything was completely made up. The photo that he posted was from England or Belgium or someplace like that. It had been years before. And so it's kind of like, does this even make sense? And then there's whole lists of fake websites and those kinds of things that you could find on the internet. But I would say your main thing is to have a good diet and then um, check your own biases. I like, uh, I like the way you frame the question, the holistic approach, and I like Jan's response. Uh, I caution on the word objectivity because, uh, and I caution for the same reason that I, uh, I suffer the false objectivity, what I, which I often hear, not false objectivity, uh, a, a false okay. equivalency, uh, that all, you know, you know, that climate change, uh, you believe in climate change and you don't believe in climate change, they're not equal. You know, that's a false equivalency. Just because you have two points of view is not, uh, uh, is not objectivity, is not, it's not balance. Balance is trying to sort all that, all that out. Uh, I just wanted to add the uh, perspective of the fact that all these media need to make money. They need to survive. And uh, perhaps N NPR has a different set of, of needs as well. Uh, I do find that NPR, I, I really love it because they'll put people on there for interviews who I really despise, and they'll ask really serious, hard questions of them and generally try to hit back. And they're, they're actually getting better at being uh, tough on, on people that, uh, on both sides of the spectrum. So, but I, I don't know what the economics really of NPR are. What I really am disappointed in is uh, the cable news networks, which purportedly are, are run by people that are serious and, and that we respect, uh, left or right-leaning, who, and I believe perhaps for economic reasons, have, co to my mind, almost completely fallen down on the job of digging uh, even scratching the surface of stories most of the time rather than and and just have one agenda which is to talk about TRUMP all the time. I don't want to say his name out loud. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, just curious about 
econo the economics of the business and, and why it is that, that, that people who we seemingly respect don't, don't tell us things we haven't heard 25 times the same day. I, I will tell you very quickly about the, uh, the NP NPR and, and, and public broadcasting model is we are, as I said when I welcomed you, we are listener supported. So if you like what you hear and you believe and you think we're a, we are a credible news source, it's important that you support us. It's important that you take out subscriptions to newspapers or websites uh, you know, that have paywalls. Um, there's this sense in the internet era that news is free. Well, you know, Jim in particular had to do the budgets and stuff. And he can tell you it's not free to have quality people. And sometimes you have to hire the lawyers to back those quality people up. So really that's important. We got time and told for one more question back there. Um, thank, thank you. Um, oh, you know, I, I understand and I hear that nationally there's some trusted sources that you can identify that, that kind of hit the ball down the middle. But uh, in Ohio, I'd, I'd be interested in the panel's comment. The you know Fortress Investments, which is a huge hedge fund, owns the Dispatch, the Repository, and the Beacon Journal. Um, the uh, Gates Hedge Fund is in the process of buying all the Gannett papers, which includes the Cincinnati Inquirer. The Apollo Hedge Fund is about to buy the Dayton Daily News. The Plain Dealer uh, Newsroom can't even field a softball team at this point because of the cuts that have come, in, and that's the one non-hedge fund-owned paper that will exist in Ohio. At the local level, wh what's the solution to that challenge that's coming? Jim, you want to take that because you also have a, you have a very interesting nonprofit news organization you've been involved with. I'm involved. I've been involved with the the uh, need to make money, and I've, I'm now involved in the need to uh, make money to support a nonprofit. It's it's all business, and it's in, it's important to understand that. I mean. The newspapers at the at the time of uh, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst really um, became newspapers of the of the general public, and what they found is that if they produce uh, if they produce newspapers that brought in money, uh, that they would could produce better newspapers. I would say the same today. I mean, I'm not a big fan of hedge funds doing anything, but hedge funds are in the business of making money. And th there has been an understanding that quality is one way to make money. And that's not lost on the hedge funds. And, and, and uh, we often want to glorify the, uh, the days of, of uh, family ownership uh, family ownership was a problem in this country. Uh, it's, it's, it's larger organizations in Cleveland, the Newhouse family, uh, in, in Akron, the Knight family, that really uh, took a stand for quality uh, journalism. And so it's just because you have to make money doesn't mean that you uh, have to do it uh, improperly, badly. Which, it, which has been true in the past, but what I will point out to you whenever someone called me and asked me, uh, uh, why didn't you print this story or why didn't you do this, uh, publish this information, I, I generally ask them, how did you find out? And inevitably they say, well, I read it this place. You read it in Bloomberg. 
Bloomberg is a big corporation that, uh, that, that makes a lot of money. Michael Bloomberg is a very rich guy. So just, um, I, you know, the, the concern about consolidation and profits is a real one, both from the perspective you just mentioned, which I think is personified by Sheldon Adelson, uh, who went out and bought a, new, a newspaper to make sure that it could, it, it could be muzzled. Um, but uh, also because consolidation hits new, local news hard. But I would just offer a somewhat more pessimistic note. We seem to think that this is some innovation, that, that consolidation and purchases by hedge funds and the disappearance of newsrooms is some new development that must be corrected. That is the state of nature. We have no God-given right to newspapers. They have never been profitable. They are fundamentally unprofitable. Economics treats them as the quintessential public good, something more expensive to produce than the market will ever support by demand. So we're in a situation where we've been lucky that by subsidizing investigative reporters with insane advertisers and classified ads, which disappear with the internet, we enjoyed the benefits of journalism for so long. But make no mistake, we don't have a right to it, and it will not simply be provided for us. Those hedge funds are chasing profits. And until demand creates a need for local news, where people want it and will pay for it, we're not going to get it, because we get the media that we pay for. All right. On that note, um, they are, I think there are people lined up for the next movie. Um, so I want to thank uh, Oren Rudowski, Jan Leach, Jim Crutchfield, and Patrick Cabot. I want to thank all of you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.